Jack frowned. I know you've been through a rough spell these past couple of years, Patrick. Losing your house and the drought killing your crops. I also know how you've continued to help other struggling farmers with your store. Your generosity, in turn, has hurt you. What do you think you'll do next? Patrick tightened his lips, but smiled while shrugging his shoulders. I'm not sure yet, but I need to figure out something soon. Responsibility is breathing down my neck. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. Today's episode features Chapter 34 of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled A Voice in the Tavern. And... Did you you hear that? Anyway, it's time to bring out our hosts, Maximilian Braveheart the Bruce, Lizette Briant, and Nigel P. Monaco, better known as Max, Liz, and Nigel. What was that? Did did you hear that? Uh, Hear what, lad? That voice, listen. Uh, We do not hear anything, monsieur, but it does not surprise me that you do. (laughs) Aye, announcer lad, hearing things? It could happen. It would not surprise me. Come on, I'm not making this up. Listen. Wait, Uh, me keen sense of canine hearing did hear something that time. Uh, We, so did my feline hearing. Uh, So apparently Monsieur is not going, uh, at least not not this this time. time. But what is it saying, and and where is it coming from? Listen. I'm taking you out on Achterliebel. She is falling apart, yeah? It sounds foreign. Uh, we? So do I. So do I. Uh, Which reminds me, uh, where's Moosey? Nigel had an appointment. Uh, He said he might be uh, a tad late. (laughs) That does sound like Moosey. But this voice doesn't. It's not his accent, anyway. L- listen. This must be painted. I will fix you, yeah? And, and this, what you does? Someone thought this was tasteful? Nine, nine, nine. Hello, I- I'm here. <laughs> I'm, s- I'm sorry. I do apologize. I am dreadfully late. Hey, where you been, lad? Well, I was having my whiskers professionally preened. It takes time, you know. Uh, whiskers like these don't just happen by accident. We, oui, you do look stunning, mon ami. Well, I'm much obliged. Raoul used a new conditioner this time, and I... Uh, can we get back to hearing voices? Well, I say, one who arrives a few minutes late is certainly prone to missing things, what? Aye, we've been hearing voices, Mosey. All of you? Hmm. Well, I've, I've heard of this sort of thing, mass hallucinations and such. Nigel, shh! Listen for yourself. Um, yeah, this is not early American Gute Nacht, and this is uh, early landfill habanier. It sounds sort of like German. Listen, you can hear it better through the heat register. Well, we need some Schwarzenschlager for the feng shui, yeah? Oh, yeah. There's someone down there, all right. 
All right, wee voice, show yourself then. Ha, don't. I'm going to have to take you out piece by piece. I'd like to see you try. I, I say, Max, old chap, uh, uh, let it go. I believe I've figured out what is going on here. Uh, I say, Klaus, is that you? Yeah. Je comprends. It seems we have a voice in the ductwork. And Mosey called him Klaus. <laughs> Maybe it be Santa Claus. Oh, Max, do not be silly. He is not in the chimney. We don't have a chimney. We have a furnace with air ducts. Hmm. Excellent point, mon ami. But it don't be Christmas. So what should we do? Well, for now, instead of worrying about a voice in the ductwork, we simply need to let announcer chap read a voice in the tavern. Uh, I say, that was your cue, huh? Oh, Chapter 34, A Voice in the Tavern. Hanover Tavern, December 5th, 1759. A rosy-cheeked middle-aged gentleman dressed in a green wool coat stood unsteadily to his feet. He clanked a fork against his half-empty pewter mug and shouted above the noise in the tavern, The church bells of London have worn thin from their happy ringing to celebrate our British victories this year. He leaned over the table, sloshing his ale as he emphasized every point. We routed the French in the Ohio, in Quebec, in the West Indies, in India, and on the high seas. Pewter plates and tin lanterns rattled as the gentlemen seated around him pounded on the table and shouted, Huzzah! God save the king! I toast to King George! The gentlemen exclaimed, followed by the others who all lifted their mugs. Patrick, another chorus! Gladly, sir, Patrick Henry answered, as he hurried to the table and held his fiddle up to his chin with a smile. He pulled back his bow, and immediately the tavern filled with music and voices singing God Save the King. God save great George our King, long live our noble King, God save the King. Send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the King. O Lord our God, arise, scatter his enemies, and make them fall. Confound their politics, frustrate their knavish tricks, on him our hearts are fixed, O save us all. O grant him long to see friendship and unity always increase. May he his scepter sway, all loyal souls obey, join heart and voice, huzzah, God save the king. Hear, hear! The table of rowdy gentlemen exclaimed, continuing to pound the table. They clapped and cheered as their leader took his seat. They wore wide grins, gave each other hearty back slaps, and clanked their mugs of ale. Several of these men had fought together with the Virginia militia against the French and Indians out on the frontier. They lifted toasts to their many fallen friends who didn't return from the war. The bond they shared after all they had been through together was as solid as the heavy table they pounded. 
Patrick immediately moved into playing a lively Scottish jig and danced to the delight of the tavern patrons. Barefoot and dressed in his coarse Osna linen shirt and checked pants, he moved from table to table, giving individual attention to his guests, who smiled and clapped along. The tavern was packed, with some guests playing cards, billiards, backgammon, and dice, while others pored over the latest newspapers just delivered, announcing the latest glorious British victory and news from the colonies and abroad. Other guests huddled together and discussed business, trade, or legal matters to be addressed at Hanover Courthouse for court day on the morrow. Court day was held the first Thursday of each month in Hanover County, but the major cases were held in the quarter sessions of March, June, September, and December. Every county in Virginia had a county court overseen by eight or so judges, or gentlemen justices of the peace. Patrick Henry's father, John Henry, was one of eight justices who served at Hanover Courthouse, including Patrick's half-brother, John Syme, and several cousins. John Henry was not a lawyer, nor did he possess formal training in the law, neither of which was required. The county court was the local arm of colonial government and performed many functions, including the processing of wills and deeds, hearing small civil suits, and trying criminal cases, except for those whose charges carried the death penalty. The more important and serious cases were heard by the highest judicial court in the colony, the General Court in Williamsburg. As the colonial capital, Williamsburg was also where the three-tiered central government of Virginia, made up of the royal governor, his council, and the House of Burgesses, conducted its affairs. The governor was appointed by the King of England and represented the interests of the crown, not those of the people. His council was made up of twelve men appointed for life who served as advisors and sat on the general court. The House of Burgesses were elected representatives of the people, two from each county. Towns such as Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Norfolk could petition to also send one representative. In addition to local cases, county justices also oversaw the building and maintaining of roads and bridges, as well as ferry operations. They regulated tobacco warehouses, granted licenses to taverns, collected taxes, and served on the Board of Elections. It was important that elections be efficiently organized, with qualified voters properly registered and votes correctly counted and reported. Judges also were empowered to pass ordinances on matters covered insufficiently by the General Assembly. Justice John Henry and his colleagues were not paid for these services, nor were their expenses reimbursed but these powerful positions were sought after for the social prestige and access to political advancement they yielded, including election to the House of Burgesses or even gaining the governor's ear by appointment to his council. The royal governor appointed these judges for life, so openings were few and far between. When openings did come available, the tight-knit group of justices would submit three names for the governor to choose a replacement. They were always from the best people of the wealthy landed gentry or prominent gentlemen of the county. Court days transformed Hanover into a festival-like atmosphere, similar to the St. Andrew's Day celebration. People traveled from their farms throughout the countryside and gathered for business, legal matters, and fun. Merchants and peddlers lined the streets with their carts to sell their wares. There were horse races, horse trading, traveling entertainers, cockfights, prize fights, and plenty of betting. 
People also entertain themselves at the expense of those unfortunate enough to be locked in the stocks, standing in the pillory, or receiving lashes. They cast jeers at the minor offenders who were caught drinking too much, cursing too loudly, slandering too often, punching too hard, or attending church too infrequently. If you were at least 14 years of age, you were expected to stand trial and pay your fine. Hanover Tavern was a long, wooden building with a porch running across the front, located directly across the street from Hanover Courthouse. It served meals and drinks to guests downstairs and offered lodging for travelers upstairs. It was not proper for genteel women to frequent taverns, except if the tavern was used for a dance or other special function. Taverns were the nerve centers of colonial life where the people gathered, swapped news, conducted business, and enjoyed themselves. John Shelton had graciously allowed Patrick and Sally to move with their children into the cabin attached to the back of Hanover Tavern in the fall of 1757. Patrick gladly volunteered to help his father-in-law run the tavern when he could, especially during court days. He tended bar, served meals, entertained guests, and made sure overnight lodgers got their money's worth of 75 cents for a bed with clean sheets. Patrick still attempted farming at Pine Slash with an overseer, and had even tried opening another store with a clerk a mile from Hanover Tavern in the summer of 1758. He only brought in 10 pounds during the hot summer months before the tobacco harvest, so after just a short year, the writing was already on the wall. Another devastating drought and miserable tobacco crop caused Patrick to relive the same scenario as with the first store, which his father had set up for him and William. Farmers racked up debts they couldn't pay, and Patrick knew it was only a matter of time before he would have to close his store. So he had failed as a farmer and now twice as a merchant, living with his family on the good graces of his father-in-law in a tiny cabin behind a tavern. But Patrick suspected that John Shelton had also once been beholden in some way to his father-in-law, William Parks, who previously owned Hanover Tavern, so Patrick thought they might share an unspoken bond in that regard. The six-foot, blue-eyed, 160-pound, 23-year-old Patrick Henry kept his good humor as he interacted with a cross-section of every sector of society during court days. Lawyers, judges, witnesses, and plaintiffs and defendants filled the tables before and after sessions in Hanover Courthouse. And while he filled their glasses, they filled his ears with talk of their cases. Patrick was fascinated by the legal process and especially enjoyed the intrigue of challenging cases they discussed. He frequently slipped over to the brick-arched Hanover Courthouse to watch attorneys spar in the arena of law. He couldn't wait to sit and soak up the courtroom drama tomorrow. Should I make an appearance, my dear, so you can show Patrick that you are earning your keep? Nigel asked Liz. Together they sat behind a large barrel near the enormous fireplace in the tap room, watching Patrick busily tending to his guests. They had arranged for Patrick to bring Liz to live at the tavern by having Nigel scurry around so Patrick could see the little mouse. They had put on a good show of Liz catching Nigel and carrying him outside. Patrick was pleased that Liz kept Hanover Tavern mouse-free. The fact that you no longer show yourself is evidence enough that my services are valuable, no? 
Liz replied with a coy smile. <laughs> By Jove, you're right, Nigel chuckled warmly. But I suppose we shall both need to stow away in the carriage for the family trip to Mount Brilliant for Christmas, although I pray Patrick's horse will be able to make the journey. His old grey mare clearly is not what she used to be. Liz frowned. We, oui, my Henry needs a new horse. He needs many things, including finding his voice. I simply do not accept that his voice is limited to singing in the tavern. There must be more to the riddle than that. The sleek black cat's tail curled up and down slowly as she studied the charming young man, listening intently to a lawyer he was serving. Nigel, have you noticed how Patrick's face lights up as he discusses the court cases with the lawyers and judges who come in here? Indeed I have, Nigel replied. He always has to pry himself off the bench in Hanover Courthouse to return to the tavern to help Mr. Shelton on court days. He clearly loves the intrigue and spectacle of courtroom drama. I was just privy to a conversation Patrick had outside Hanover Courthouse with several lawyers discussing that testy two-penny act business. The dastardly Virginia Parsons have been up in arms about it. Patrick was riled up as they discussed the appalling behavior of the Parsons, including that of his own Uncle Patrick. Two-penny act? But it was passed to help the tobacco farmers, no? Liz asked. Precisely, my dear. Parsons are paid an annual salary of 16,000 pounds of tobacco a year, which normally runs two pennies per pound in years with a bountiful harvest, Nigel explained. But with the pitiful harvests of 1755 and 1758, the price of tobacco tripled, which would in turn cripple the farmers who simply could not pay that much. The House of Burgesses twice passed the Two-Penny Act as a temporary relief measure so farmers could pay with coin instead of tobacco, and at the normal two-penny rate. This is logical. So what is the problem for the Parsons? Liz wanted to know. Nigel's eyes narrowed and he rubbed his hands together. Greed is the problem, specifically greedy Parsons, of all things. Rather than see this as a beneficial measure to help their suffering congregations, they see it as an outrage and a loss of money to line their pockets. So half of Virginia's clergy met and decided to send Reverend John Cam to London to ask the King's Privy Council to overturn the act. They're awaiting the response from London now. Liz's eyes widened. This is preposterous. How dare those shepherds fight something designed to help their own flocks? And they have even gone over the elected heads of the House of Burgesses right to the king. Nigel nodded. They act more like wolves than shepherds, I'm afraid. But you should have heard Patrick discuss the controversy with the lawyers. He has quite the brilliant understanding of the case, and his passion is undeniable. We, oui, being a farmer himself, he can personally relate, Liz agreed, her tail whipping back and forth. She was angry. If anyone could champion such a cause and speak up for the tobacco farmers, it is my Henry. Suddenly it dawned on her as she heard Patrick playing his fiddle and singing loudly so all the tavern could hear. A voice in the tavern. Nigel, do you suppose Patrick could be a lawyer? Liz asked, watching Patrick entertain the guests. The people adored him. 
Nigel's eyes lit up at the thought. I actually think that would be a brilliant profession for him. Patrick certainly has the mind for it, but how would he achieve such a feat? He cannot travel to London for schooling, nor does he have the luxury of studying for years under an established lawyer. He would then need to travel to Williamsburg to receive a law license. He could teach himself here in the tavern, Liz answered, growing excited. Together, Hanover Courthouse and Hanover Tavern make one big classroom for studying law. Patrick can read law books, attend class at the courthouse with actual cases, and then ask all the questions he needs as his professors come to him here in the tavern. When he is ready, he can then go to Williamsburg for his license to practice law. But he can practice not just at Hanover Courthouse, but at many other courthouses in the surrounding counties. C'est magnifique! I believe I have uncovered the fiddle's riddle. My Henry's voice in the tavern will not be as a singer of Scottish songs, but as a lawyer. My dear, it is quite an ambitious, lovely idea, but do you suppose it is possible? Nigel asked, twirling his whiskers with a paw, studying the barefoot fiddler performing for the guests. He clearly needs help to be transformed into a lawyer. Liz looked at Nigel and batted her eyes. Mon ami... After all we have seen on our missions, you would ask if something is possible? Shame on you, she teased. Nigel bowed humbly with his paw draped over his chest and his front foot extended. My most sincere apologies, my pet. You are right. And you have indeed unlocked the mysterious riddle of the voice in the tavern. He straightened up and preened his whiskers. Now I see what Gilliman meant by Hanover being no ordinary tavern. All my enemy needs are some law books and a horse, calculated Liz. Just then Jack Poindexter opened the door of the tavern and looked around for a table, book under his arm. We will need to contact Gilliman tonight about some law books. For now, I know someone who can help my Henry with a horse. She lifted her tail and made her way over to the table. "'Good day, Mr. Poindexter,' Patrick, towel over his shoulder and a platter of food in his hand, greeted the kind older gentleman. "'Table for one?' "'Patrick, it's always good to see you. Uh, "'Just one, but hopefully not for long,' Jack replied with a smile and his thick Virginia drawl, pointing his walking stick with a wink. "'There's always someone to talk to in the tavern before court day. Uh, "'Bring me a hot toddy, please.' "'Indeed, sir. Have a seat by the window, and I'll be right there,' Patrick agreed, taking the food over to another table. Jack sat down with a grunt, set his book on the table, and leaned his walking stick on the open chair. He rubbed his hands together and blew into them to warm up. Liz came over and rubbed his legs, purring. "'Hello there!' he said with a smile, reaching down to pet Liz on the floor. He chuckled as she wrapped her tail around his legs. Patrick came over, set a warm mug on the table, and Jack noticed his feet. Why, Patrick, aren't you cold in those bare feet? You do realize it's December, not July. Patrick looked down at his feet, placed his hands on his hips, and laughed. <laughs> yes, but it gets quite warm in here on a busy day like today. I've never liked shoes too much. Besides, Sally would rather me clean my feet than my filthy shoes after working in the tavern. 
Just then, a loud shout arose as the group of celebrating men cheered another toast, sloshing their mugs onto the floor. Scattered all around them were scraps of food and mud they had tracked in from the street. As you can clearly see. Jack chuckled. <laughs> I see. If only my horses could go around shoeless, he said, tapping his book. Patrick leaned over and read the title. No Foot, No Horse, an essay by Jeremiah Bridges. Uh, what's this book about? It's a new book from London about the care of horses and their shoes. <laughs> as you know, if a horse doesn't have good shoes, it's as worthless as no horse at all, Jack replied. I always like to make sure my horses are well taken care of, especially their shoes. I just bought several new pairs from the blacksmith, including some for Ms. P. You know, she always enjoys the apples you send to her, Patrick. Ms. P. isn't a filly anymore, is she? She's grown into a beautiful mare, Patrick answered with a bright smile. I wish I could buy a new horse to attach to some shoes. Mine is ridden about as far as she can. Jack frowned. I know you've been through a rough spell these past couple of years, Patrick. What with losing your house and the drought killing your crops? He put his hand on Patrick's arm. I also know how you've continued to help other struggling farmers with your store. Your generosity, in turn, has hurt you. He looked around the bustling tavern. Mr. Shelton was kind to let you stay here, but what do you think you'll do next? Patrick tightened his lips, but smiled while shrugging his shoulders. I'm not sure yet, but I need to figure out something soon. Responsibility is breathing down my neck. I've been waiting and trying to figure things out, but uh, nothing yet. I know you're not much of a drinking man, so I'm sure you're not even enjoying any of the spirits that you serve, guessed Jack as he held up his cup and took a sip of his toddy. He set it on the table and lifted his walking stick from the chair. Sit a moment, Patrick. I want to share something with you. Patrick did as he was told and took a seat. He leaned in to listen carefully, as he always did with everyone. There once was a knight who was being chased by merciless enemies. They were breathing down his neck, Jack started, locking eyes with Patrick. He was galloping along at a fast pace, but soon realized his horse needed a new shoe. What was he to do? Stop and replace the shoe for his mare? Or keep going? Patrick thought a moment. I would think he should try to push the horse on to escape the enemy. It would take too much time to replace a shoe. Jack smiled and shook his head. Not that much time. That knight knew the small amount of time invested to shoe his horse would be worth it, for it wouldn't take long for the enemy to catch up if his horse stopped running altogether. He wisely stopped at the blacksmith to care for his mare. And although he heard the thunderous approach of the enemy, he knew his horse could outrun them if she was well equipped. Jack sat back in his seat and took another sip. So what happened? Patrick eagerly asked. Just as the enemy got within a hundred yards of him, the knight mounted his horse and galloped off faster than the wind, Jack explained. He held up a finger to Patrick. The stop had actually hastened the knight's escape. He leaned in. Sometimes the stops we don't want to take end up helping us run ahead of everyone else, 
You just stopped right now, Patrick. Patrick breathed in deeply and nodded, staring at the book. No foot, no horse. He smiled, tapping the book. Thank you for sharing that, Mr. Poindexter. Uh, I'm sure you're right. Patrick, another round, and bring your fiddle, cheered the rosy-cheeked man in the green wool coat. I need to tend to the other guests, Patrick apologized, standing up, and to figure out what else I need, besides a new horse. He smiled and patted Jack on the back. Turning to the other table, Patrick announced, Coming right up, gentlemen. Liz jumped up in Jack's lap and purred. He smiled and petted her as he watched young Patrick happily go about serving others in his bare feet. That knight has no foot and no horse. Then give him one of yours, Liz meowed. Give him Miss P. Jack smiled and scratched Liz under the chin. <laughs> Aren't you the talkative cat? <laughs> if only I knew what you were saying, he chuckled and set her on the floor. Liz swished her tail and looked up at the horse owner with a determined face. You soon shall, monsieur. She lifted her curlicue tail and walked back through the noisy tavern. She grinned at Patrick, playing his magic fiddle. He winked at her as he bowed low to play a couple of notes before turning to hold out his arms and let his voice fill the tavern with song. Enjoy your singing while it lasts, mon ami. You will not be doing it much longer. Liz couldn't stay for the merriment. She needed to get to work making a Christmas list for her Henry, and she knew exactly how to deliver it. Well, I left us a bit of a cliffhanger, no? Aye, but you also mentioned Christmas, and we got Santa Claus in the ductwork. Uh, no, Max, I, I'm afraid you are mistaken, old chap. Uh, excuse me, please. Uh, I, I say, uh, uh, Klaus, uh, reach up and grab my uh, tiny little hand. Yeah, ich bin reaching, stretching. Mm. Uh, here, uh, grab me paw, lad. Uh, danke, mein Freund. Danke. Danke? You mean like a donut? No, Max, danke is thank you in German. Yeah, danke. Oui, uh, bitte. Uh, how about uh, English? Uh, Max, Liz, I'd like to introduce my gerbil friend. You mean German friend? Well, uh, both, actually. Yeah, I am Klaus Wermenhauser, and I am a German gerbil. A German gerbil? Yeah, a German gerbil. <laughs> Next we'll be having guinea pigs from New Guinea. Uh, what do you be doing in our ductwork then, Klaus? Uh, well, I can answer that, old chap. My friend Klaus is an interior designer, and I've hired him to help me expand my living quarters here to include, well, um, some of the uh, ductwork. Yeah, and it is challenging to say the least. What is the problem? Ach, der lieber, it is eine kleine pigsty. Uh, pardon, monsieur? Excusez-moi? Uh, can anybody speak a wee bit of English? Uh, indeed. Max, it seems that our ductwork is rather filthy and in complete disrepair from years of neglect. And whose fault do that be? Monsieur Announcer? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> hey, ooh, look at the time. Seems it's time to check in with our author friend, Jenny L. Cody. Yep, it's time for Jenny's Corner, all right. I say, Miss Jenny, uh, sounds like the old boy's attempting to get you to bail him out, what? <laughs> yeah, right, Mr. Announcer Lad? 
Okay, fine. Guilty as charged. I need to get the ducts cleaned. But uh, do you have some insights on today's chapter, Miss Jenny? Maybe even a great idea for a field trip? This is one of my favorite chapters, A Voice in the Tavern, because it's kind of unexpected. But here you see the culmination of a lot of things happening to lead Patrick Henry to his purpose. But he still doesn't know what that is yet. Look at what's happened to him so far. He's failed at everything he's tried right? He's failed as a merchant. He's failed as a tobacco farmer. His house burnt down. He has to take his little family and move into his father-in-law's tavern to wait on patrons there at a tavern. I'm sure he's feeling like he's really got a soaring life calling now. But there's something magical happening in Hanover Tavern, and I can't wait for you to see what happens next. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but one neat thing I do want to share with you is that you can go visit Hanover Tavern today. It's actually opened, and you can eat lunch there, dinner there, in the very rooms where Patrick Henry lived and worked. It's right across the street from Hanover Courthouse there in Hanover, Virginia, just outside of Richmond. And so I encourage you and your family, go See where this history happened with Patrick Henry. Everything is very close, so you can see these incredible sights. But there's another voice that I think we need to hear from, and that is the voice of the voice of the revolution and of every other voice on this podcast except um, mine. (laughs) Mr. Announcer Lad, have any words for us today? Uh, What does she be talking about, lad? Uh, I think she's referring to my personal journey that maybe bears some resemblance to Patrick Henry's. You see, several years ago, I moved to the Nashville area after years of being in radio and television. And a bit like Patrick Henry's life, I needed to refine my way. And so I started doing voiceover work, uh, voice acting, and at one point decided to do a demo that is a demonstration recording of the way I would do audiobooks. And so. I used a variety, including a children's book, which just happened to be The Ark, The Reed, and The Fire Cloud by Jenny L. Cody. See, Jenny was already a friend of mine, and so when I finished my demo, I decided to send her a little clip of me doing her book. Just thought she'd get a kick out of it. She emailed me back and said, when can we do the whole book? Now, that was 2015. It would be another three years before everything lined up properly for me to be able to do the audiobook the Ark, the Reed, and the Fire Cloud. Now, that was 2018. So then in early 2020, I came up with this idea of doing a podcast, including some of the main characters, and telling the story of the Ark, maybe a chapter or two at a time. And I proposed this to Jenny back in February of 2020, and she loved the idea. And I said we would always add a little bit of Jenny's corner to give some insight on her writing process and so on. And the epic order of the seven, the podcast launched on March 24th, 2020. Fast forward now, this is our 87th episode. 87 weeks in a row we've been doing this, and it's been a labor of love for me and a real joy. Then, as 2020, that strange year, evolved, it was also obvious that it was time to do the next book, which, of course, is The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, what we're listening to on our podcast now. In the meantime, as of this airing, which this was recorded in November of 2021, closing in on the Christmas season, I'm closing in on finishing 
The next book in this series is the one right after The Voice of Revolution the Key, called The Declaration, The Sword, and the Spy, and deals more with the Declaration of Independence and the early portions of the American Revolutionary War. And I'm excited to say I'm just about done with it, and we should have it out in time for the holidays, again, as of this recording in November of 2021. All that to say, it's been a long journey, and it's really just getting started. We have lots more planned for the future with the podcasts and the audiobooks from Jenny L. Cody. You see, it'll be ready for Christmas. That's right. Uh, now I wish Mousy's friend really was Santa Claus. <laughs> Max, uh, so, monsieur, much like Mont Henry, uh, you had to do some searching to find your voice again, oui? Uh, yeah, I sure did. And in the process of finding my voice, I found your voice. Aye, mine too. Indeed, even mine. Und mine? Yeah, is it German Cherbel? Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but most of all, I had to continue to listen to the voice of the Maker, to our Heavenly Father, the one who determines and directs our paths, the one who makes all things new, even new ways to use my old voice. And he's the one who loves us unconditionally forever and ever. Hey, preach it, lad! And the one who tells me uh, when to stop using my voice. Uh, that would be now, we? Oui? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh... We. Oui. I mean... Yeah. I mean... I. I mean, indeed. And I'll do that right after I say this. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.